You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. The podcast of two friends who never met in real life and now meet every week to talk about murder, mystery, and the macabre throughout history. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for yet another episode. And before we get into today's topic, please allow us to take two minutes for some quick organizational talk. We reached the last month of the year, and if you're a longtime listener, then you know that we usually take some time off over the holidays. Of course, we're going to do so this year as well. Like everyone else, we really want to just focus on spending time with our families. But we're going to do something different with the podcast this year. Usually, we take a three-week break, and during that time, we don't drop anything new. But this year, we wanted to actually provide content for those of you who said you needed something to listen to during the holidays. So we heard you. We're going to do something. It's going to be a couple of special episodes, not like our traditional episodes, and we really hope you will enjoy them. So keep an eye and ear out on your podcast app after Christmas, because we will be releasing some interesting topics. Okay. I think yes. that's everything we needed to tell them up front, right? Yeah, I think so yeah. too. Okay. If you want to know anything more about the podcast and how to support us, please listen to the end because now it's time to talk about a very big case. That's right. It's a case many people know about, which always makes it a little bit scary. It's a case that for many was one of the first true crime cases that got them interested I am, of course, talking about the Clutter family murders that took place in November of 1959 in Holcomb, Kansas. The reason why this case is so notorious is, of course, owed to the fact that Truman Capote wrote In Cold Blood, which I think was the first of his two non-fiction books, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, many people interested in true crime obviously read In Cold Blood. I did as well many, many times. And we will talk about it, um, the good, the not-so-good, and also the non-factual side of the book, as well as about Truman Capote, more in part two, though, next week. Because, yes, this will be a two-part episode. Our biggest sources for this case are, of course, In Cold Blood, but even more so the 2017 documentary Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders, as well as other newspaper articles. And as always, you will find all of it in our sources in the According album on Facebook and Patreon. If you're not on Facebook or Patreon, you can always contact us and we will send you the links to the episode. All right, I think we start. Annie, would you do me the honor to start? You know I would love to. So. This murder took place in rural Kansas. Fun fact for our international listeners, in the spirit of you don't know how to pronounce things that you've only read, there's the state of Kansas, and then there's the state of Arkansas. Arkansas is spelled Arkansas, A-R-K-A-N-S-A-S, but it is pronounced Arkansas. 
We've actually seen this come up more than once at pub quizzes in the UK. So now you know, all of our UK listeners have a secret in on how that should be pronounced. So I think many people think of Kansas as being a very rural state, but interestingly, this surprised me. It's not one of the top 10 rural states in the U.S., not when we talk about rural population. The state with the highest percentage of people living in rural areas is Vermont, with 64.9% of its people living outside of cities. And it's also not at the top when we look at the biggest rural land area. I was wrong about that one too, foolishly. My first thought was like Minnesota maybe, or I don't know, but it's Alaska. I would have thought like Montana. Montana, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Montana, the Dakotas, always seemed mm, like Dakotas, huge yeah. expanses of land to me, like in my mind. So Kansas has a rural land area of 98.8% and a rural population of 27.7%. These people farming the land are very important for the U.S., growing lots of the crops that are used all over the nation. These stats are from USDA.gov. Quote, Kansas a leader in wheat, grain, sorghum, and beef production. In 2017, Kansas ranked number one in wheat production according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture. That is presumably where all of these stats come from, because they're all 2017. Continuing, Kansas farms produced 319 million bushels of wheat from 7 million harvested acres, accounting for almost 18% of all wheat grown in the United States. Kansas also ranked number one in grain sorghum production. On the 2.4 million acres of sorghum harvested for grain in Kansas, 194 million bushels were produced. This accounted for a whopping 55% of all grain sorghum produced in the U.S. Kansas farmers know how to grow other crops as well. Kansas corn production totaled 694 million bushels, ranking 7th in the nation. Soybean production in Kansas was 197 million bushels, 10th in the nation. Kansas also produced 74 million pounds of sunflowers in 2017, coming in 4th. On the nearly 27,000 Kansas farms and ranches, raising cattle and calves, Nearly 8 million head were sold in 2017. Just over 5.4 million hogs were sold off from Kansas farms, which was up almost 8% from five years before. Overall, the nearly 60,000 Kansas ranches and farms, which encompassed about almost 46 million acres, accounted for roughly $19 billion worth of agricultural products sold in 2017. End quote. I didn't think Kansas would be that big on cattle farming or on livestock farming. Yeah, $19 billion. Yeah. And up 12%, what did they say? Up 8%. 8%, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Kansas is well-suited for agriculture due to a combination of favorable natural conditions, including climate, soil, and topography. Kansas has a continental climate with distinct seasons with hot summers and cold winters providing a diverse climate that supports the cultivation of a variety of crops. Temperature variations also contribute to the development of hard red winter wheat, a staple crop in the region. 
The state has a range of soil types, offering opportunities for the cultivation of different crops. This availability of nutrient-rich soil supports high agricultural productivity. So it's no wonder the state has a strong tradition of farming, with many families involved in agriculture for generations. This continuity has allowed for the accumulation of knowledge and experience in adapting to the region's agricultural conditions. Of course, there would be so much more to talk about when it comes to the history of Kansas. Even just the history of agriculture in Kansas, I find it really interesting. And we haven't even mentioned the so-called Dust Bowl in the 1930s and its influence on the Great Depression. And if you want to know more about that, I can actually recommend a book uh, called The Worst Hard Time, The Untold Story of Those Who Survived the Great American Dust Bowl by Timothy Egan. Also, Ken Burns did a really excellent documentary on the Dust Bowl. They used portions of that uh, documentary in the film Interstellar. And there's a reason why we talk so much about agriculture now. Because the victims in this case were members of the farming community of Holcomb, Kansas. Holcomb lies in the southwest of Kansas, 11.2 kilometers or 7 miles west of Garden City. And nowadays there live around 2,200 people in Holcomb. But when this all takes place, it was more like uh, 200 to 250 people. I think we read in an article, you're going to hear it later on, that it was 270, but I don't have the exact census number. I could only find the census from 1910 when it was 75 people living there and 1970 when the population was 272. So I think the article with 270 seems pretty accurate. Yeah. So this is a small community. It was, it was an even smaller community back then and it very much compares to the village I live. We have a population of 200. So this was and probably still is a very tight-knit community. Everybody knew everyone. People went to church together. They helped each other out. The front doors were never locked. And according to former friends and neighbors, you, you would just knock and walk in, right, into mm -hmm. the house. Yep. One of the families living in Holcomb was the Clutter family. Herbert William Clutter was born on 24th of May 1911 in Gray County, Kansas to his parents James Alexander Clutter and his wife Mary. And Herbert, called Herb, was the middle child of a total of five siblings, two girls and three boys. In 1934, Herb married Bonnie Mae Fox, who was born on 7th of January 1914 in Rosal, Kansas, to Arthur B. and Ida Mae Fox. Isn't Bonnie Mae Fox a great name? I love it's that name. It's so good. Bonnie May Fox. I love it, but I also love Ida May Fox. I think I that's, do too. that's both such great names. That Fox last name, that's a keeper. Yeah. yeah. So Bonnie May was actually training to be a nurse, but had to quit due to health problems. And if I remember correctly, it was uh, appendicitis. And it took her too long to recover. And so she had missed a lot of school and couldn't finish her studies, unfortunately. The couple had four children, three daughters and one son, and we will not be naming the first two daughters, not talk about them in detail. They were already living their own lives at the time of the murder, so they are survivors of this family tragedy, and there are still children and grandchildren around nowadays, and we want to respect their privacy. I can, however, recommend the documentary Cold-Blooded, where grandchildren and nieces of Herb and Bonnie are actually being interviewed and they speak beautifully about all members of the Clutter family. The other two children were Nancy May, who was born on 2nd of January 1943, and 
Kenyon Neal, born on 28th of August 1944. The family settled down in Holcomb, where they soon were an integral part of the local community. Herb was county extension agent, chairman of the Kansas Conference of Farm Organizations, and a member of the Federal Farm Credit Board. I actually had to look this up, so for those of you who, like me, don't know what a county extension agent actually does, this is a quote from agcareers.com. Quote, Extension agents are employed by land-grant universities and serve the citizens of that particular state by serving as an expert or teacher on a topic relating to economics, community development, agriculture, family, animal production, diet, and nutrition. End quote. So that's interesting. Huh. So like... I'd say he's an in-between... The yeah. government and the, the, the population and... Like a congressman, know, but farm farm stuff. Maybe. Yeah, sounds like it, definitely. Yeah, yeah, like an elected... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. And Bonnie was a member of the local garden club. She was a wonderful mother to her four children. I want to mention that at the time of the murders, and especially through Capote's book, many think of Bonnie... They think that she had suffered from depression and other mental health issues since the birth of their children and that she spent much time at home in her room isolating. Now, later, members of the extended family have come forward and actually disputed this portrayal of Bonnie. Apparently, the reason why Bonnie was isolated in her bedroom in November of 1959 was not depression, but temporary back pain. And to be honest, I always felt the description of Bonnie in in cold blood, felt kind of off, because we know that she was an active member of the community in Holcomb and Garden City. I mean, of course, she could have suffered from postpartum depression. It's definitely not uncommon, but back then, less talked about. And also, I think Capote might have mixed up talk about Bonnie having been depressed for a while 15 years ago, and her back pain and just ran with the more, I don't know, traumatic or tragic interpretation of what really was going on. Mm -hmm. And we also know that Truman Capote suffered from depression at times, so maybe that was his way of writing about it. We don't know which side is true, but in cases like this, I think it's the right thing to listen to the family side of the story. They know the people. And especially as it, it doesn't really make a difference in what happened to Bonnie and her family. Like, why would we say she had depression when her family said she didn't suffer from depression when it has nothing to do with the case, in fact? Right, exactly. I completely agree. It's too hard to know what she was really suffering from, but it doesn't actually matter, as you said. But also, it doesn't matter because she was a loving wife and mother and an active member of the community, right? So as a member of the... I, I just really sympathize with her very much, Bonnie, because I also had to stop schooling when I got sick. I had to drop out of my graduate program and never finished my master's because I got my second autoimmune diagnosis. So I would just really hate to be remembered as me at my most ill, especially in a very famous novel. You know, like if you look at certain chapters of my life, wow, she was depressed and spiraling or wow, she was totally bedridden and spent the whole year in the hospital. But that's a snapshot of my life. That's not me. Sorry, I didn't mean to hijack the conversation about that, but I no, just no, feel... No, 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 it's true. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the family were members of the First Methodist Church in Garden City. 
They were hardworking, upstanding members of the community. They were very well respected, smart. The kids were such good students. And again, not that it matters, but they were a really handsome family. Like they had these good faces, very friendly faces. Herb had this great smile when you look at photos. Oh yeah, very, very attractive family. Everybody thinks they have a beautiful family. It doesn't matter if you do or don't, you think you do because you love them. And that's really what makes people attractive or not attractive, right? So when there's somebody beautiful who's killed, I really do think this is part of it. Everybody sees themselves in that person, even if they don't look remotely like them. They think, oh my God, what a beautiful family, just like mine. It's also, I think, this thought of they had everything. Yes. Everything was so perfect. How yes. could this have happened? And they worked hard for it. It's not like, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think um, Herb came from like, he didn't come from a poor family. Don't get me wrong. He attended Kansas University, but he came from a modest family. Yeah. They weren't loaded. Yeah. Herb Clutter established his farm, River Valley Farm, and he did. He worked really hard at making this enterprise a success. And he actually did become very successful and a very influential farmer. And in 1948, the family built the most beautiful home, a two-story house with a basement, and it had four bedrooms and two and a half baths. I mean, that is the, the dream, right? Literally the American dream. They are living it. Herb and Bonnie had designed the house themselves. It was a brick home. And they were so proud of it, and they loved having people over. Their home was also featured with seven photos in the weekly Kansas City Star on the 31st of August, 1949, which was a Wednesday, on page three. In the photos, you can see one of the older daughters in the <laughs> quote-unquote modern kitchen standing on a stool reaching for a cookie jar. Also in this photo spread, you see Herb and a neighboring farmer inspecting the crops. You see the whole family in front of their home. And then one photo shows six-year-old Nancy playing with her dolls. This pictorial is titled, quote, A Kansas Farm Family Builds a Firm Foundation for the Future, end quote. That's a lot of Fs. It's a lot of Almost Fs. Almost an uh, alliteration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You should have said farm family founds a firm foundation. Exactly. For the That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> or farm family finds a firm foundation for the yeah. future. <laughs> Come on. Call us. We'll, we'll fix your headlines for you. Also, in the weekly Kansas City Star from the 22nd of December, 1948, on page three, you can read the following uh, in an article entitled, quote, Stability on the Land, a Goal in Western Kansas. Forum at Garden City stresses idea that every farm should be occupied. Discussion centered on the farmer's philosophy that I will become a lover of my land, will get better acquainted with it in every way I can. The feelings of all the farm proud group were expressed by Herb W. Clutter, who urged, let's make western Kansas the best place to live, not the best place to get away from. Clutter, representative of the new generation, which has so largely taken over the development of this region, is a Pawnee County farm boy in his 30s, a graduate of State College, who resigned here a few years ago after success at Finney County Farm Agent. He wanted to try out his theories. Visitors know they are proving out when they visit his large irrigated and dry farms, see his fine herds and the home he is now completing near Holcomb, 
seven miles west to Garden City in the Arkansas Valley, one of Kansas's finest farm homes, end quote. It's also interesting to note that the Clutter family farm was featured in some reels for the television program See It Now, hosted by Edward R. Murrow. Yes, the Edward R. Murrow, legendary broadcast journalist and war correspondent. See It Now was an American news magazine and documentary series broadcast by CBS from 1951 to 1958. On the episode from the 2nd of March, 1952, you can see Herb talking about his farm and the machinery there, and you can see Bonnie unloading her washing machine. There are clips from it on the before-mentioned documentary, and I think that these are the only known footage that we have of the Clutter family. I thought it was really kind of, at the risk of sounding overdramatic, it was a little bit haunting and almost eerie to watch now because you know what's coming, you know? Mm. I don't know why, but I was so floored when I saw it and mm -hmm. heard Herb talk, especially. I had no idea that videos of, of them existed, so I don't know why. It floored me. It's, it's wild. <laughs> I just kept thinking what a gift that was, you know? I don't think uh, younger generations understand how special that is. I think they absolutely, I think you're right. I think they really, really take for granted the photo and video and memory opportunities that they have now that we just, yeah. And I think in the seed now they mention, if I, if I heard it correctly, that River Valley Farm had more than 640 acres. Mm -hmm. That would be 260 hectares. And I read that Herb employed 18 farmhands, which makes sense. It, it was a big farm. He was apparently a very respected boss who treated his employees well. And I think that fits with what we know about him as a, as a character. Absolutely. One of the farmhands was a man named William Floyd Wells Jr., who had worked for Herb from June of 1948 to January of 1949. And in Capote's book, Floyd Wells is only mentioned briefly. I think he appears on one or two pages. But his role in this case is actually really important, because without him, the Clutter family wouldn't have been murdered. And without him, the crime would have probably remained unsolved. Floyd Wells was born in 1927 in Labette County, Kansas, and what we know is that he was a high school dropout who enlisted to join the U.S. Army at age 18 in 1945. He remained active for two years and he was honorably discharged in the rank of a private first class. Somehow he ended up in Holcomb where he started to work at the W.J. Smalls Alpha Alpha Mill. Uh, alpha Alpha is a very important forage crop. It's used all over the world, basically. A few months later, Floyd Wells gets hired by Herb on the River Valley Farm. He would later claim that he was well-liked by the family and that they really appreciated his work, which seems weird, as Wells only worked there for roughly seven months. Now, granted, we don't know if he got fired or if he quit, but why would he quit uh, a good position with a fair boss and fair payment or fair wages? So he might have gotten fired, but then on the other hand, even if he got fired, it probably wasn't for anything too severe, as later on only a handful of employees of Herb could remember Wells, and the ones who remembered him only remembered him vaguely. Yeah, you'd remember him if it was something big. Yeah. 
If he would have been caught stealing, for example, or something along that line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whatever happened, we don't know. Floyd Wells left the River Valley Farm and over the next years he worked as a mechanic at different shops. So it does seem though he was one to switch places of work often. Then he decided to start his own business, a lone mower rental. There was only one problem. Uh, he didn't have money to start the business because if you want to rent out lone mowers, you should at least have one lone mower to rent I out. I mean, you need one. Let's face it. Or a sheep. A few. Yeah. A herd of goats. Something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not just going to open a bounty house <laughs> rental, you know. So Floyd Wells came up with a solution to these tiny problems of his. He simply decides to break into a store and take what he needs. This kind of thing is also referred to as stealing. <laughs> the, o- <laughs> the only problem was he got caught and he was sentenced to five to ten years in prison and he was sent to Lansing Correctional Facility. I think we talked about Lansing in our episode about Lowell Lee Andrews. Yeah. And we will circle back to, to Lansing and Lowell Lee actually in next week's episode. Okay, so Floyd Wells gets to Lansing and he is assigned to a two-bunk cell. And he shares this cell with a man named Richard or Dick Hickok. Hickok had ended up in Lansing for grand larceny and he had been writing bad checks and uh, that had earned him five to ten years in prison. But he had been paroled after only 17 months and he was due to be released in just a month or two. So Wells and Hickok share this prison cell and I guess with a lot of time on your hands you start talking and so they tell each other all kind of snippets out of their lives and a lot is showing off about the things they did and what crimes they are going to commit once they are going to be released and they inflate these stories to sound super tough. Floyd Wells starts talking about this rich farmer he used to work for over a decade earlier. A farmer over in Garden City. That man was so rich that he had a safe in his house that was always full of cash, at least $10,000. Wells had seen it with his own eyes when one day that farmer had to pay someone working on his newly built grand home and he simply opened the safe and took out $10,000 and paid the man. Just like that. Uh, By the way, according to the historical inflation calculator, $10,000 in 1959 would be $106,000 today. So I can see this is a big amount of money. And so on and on, Floyd Wells went talking about how rich this farmer was. And Richard Hickok kept listening and asking questions about the farm and the house and the family. And Hickok hatched a plan. He told Wells that once he was released, he would hit up his buddy, the man who was in this cell with him before Floyd Wells, and who had been released a couple of weeks ago, and they would get ropes and knives and shotguns, and they would drive down to the farmer's house and enter and tie all of them up, get the money, and then shoot all of them. Floyd Wells listened and nodded along, and I have no idea if he believed Hickok would really do that, or if it was just prison talk. The day came when Hickok was released from prison. I think now it's time to talk briefly about his life up to this point and the life of his buddy, who he wanted to involve in the home invasion, a man named Perry Smith. Richard Eugene Hickok was born on June 6, 1931 in Kansas City, Kansas, to Walter Hickok Sr. and his wife Eunice, who were both farm workers. Richard was not their only child. He was one of several siblings. 
Walter and Eunice were strict parents, but they took good care of their children and provided them with everything they needed and worked hard to be able to afford a decent life. While growing up, Richard Hickok was one of the popular students. He was a high school athlete and apparently wanted to attend college after graduating. Unfortunately, there was no way his parents could afford that, and so Hickok started working as a mechanic instead. Everything seemed to be going okay until 1950, when Richard Hickok had a nearly fatal car accident that left him with severe head injuries and caused trauma to his face, leaving it to look permanently sort of like slightly lopsided. There was there was damage, evidence of damage there. Yeah, it yeah. was an asymmetry going on. But the accident didn't only change him on the outside, unfortunately. According to one of his siblings, it also changed his character for the worse. It's not uncommon for serious head trauma to damage areas of the brain that can affect your morals, your filter, any kind of guilt that you would normally, you know, feel. Empathy. Empathy. We've seen yeah. head injury and CTE for that matter and how it can really negatively and dangerously affect people. We've talked about that many, many times in the past. It's also known with some tumors, like they really can change Absolutely. a person's personality. 100%. Yep. 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 I had a dear friend who died of a glioblastoma and her biggest fear, which thank God never happened, was that there would be huge personality or mood changes that would affect the kids. So small, small miracles on that scale. But absolutely, it's you can't underestimate what can happen to your brain with seemingly the smallest injury. Honestly, it's terrifying. And of course, we already know, right? His family didn't come from money. And now there's this long hospital stay, which has left him with an incredible amount of debt. He started to write bad checks, which led to theft, and then other petty crimes soon followed. He couldn't hold a steady job anymore. He started drifting from employment to employment, not only working as a mechanic, but also as an ambulance driver and a railroad worker. We think that is when he went to prison for the first time for the theft of a rifle. In 1951, Hickok married his first wife, but he was not a faithful husband. He cheated on his first wife and the couple divorced in April of 1957. He immediately went on to marry his mistress. He was like, look, it's fine. I'm still married. But surprisingly, that marriage didn't last long either. His second wife divorced him while he was in prison for grand larceny charges. In total, he fathered three children. But we haven't really spent any time trying to figure out from which marriage because he was not a present father in the, the lives of these children. And we just really hope that all of his exes and children went on to live a great life without him in it. Sincerely. Yeah. So, as we said, he went to Lansing for 17 months, and that's where he met Perry Smith, who he shared a cell with for most of his sentence. So, Perry Edward Smith was born on 27th of October 1928 in Huntington, Nevada, as the son of John Tex Smith and Julia Flo Buckskin Smith. Both were rodeo performers. John, or as he was called Tex, had been married before in 1918, but the marriage had ended in divorce some time after the birth of his first son. At one point, he then met Flo, who was either of Shoshone or Cherokee heritage, and the couple had five children in total. One daughter unfortunately died shortly after being born. Perry Smith was the youngest of the children. The family life was not happy, to say the least. 
1929, Tex packed up his family and moved them to Alaska, where he started to bootleg alcohol. And remember, that was during the prohibition that lasted until 1933. Tex was very abusive towards his family, especially towards Flo, and at one point in 1935, she just couldn't take it anymore, and she brought up the strength and courage to take her children and leave. And I think that can't have been easy. No, that's never easy. They relocated to California, to San Francisco to be exact, but there was no happy ending for Flo and her children. She started to self-medicate with alcohol, and she died on 12th of October 1947. Now, some sources say that Flo died when Perry Smith was only 13 years old and that he and his siblings were placed in a Catholic orphanage after her death. But I don't think that's true because her death certificate and the funeral bill state 1947. And that would make Perry Smith 19, right? Yeah, I think he was 19. I think that I think that 1947, whatever it is, the funeral records that we have, I think, are very clear on the dates. So... Uh, there's also the, the snippet from the obituary. And because at first I thought, do I have the wrong woman? But when you read the obituary, they name the children. And I think it's pretty clear that it's her. Yeah. So in 1947, all of her children would have been basically leading independent lives. So as I said, I assume that at one point prior to that, Flo wasn't able to take care of the children anymore. And that's when they had been placed in the Catholic home. I don't think the strict home was a positive experience for Perry Smith and his siblings. We all know many, many stories of how native or mixed-race children were treated in those institutions, and basically all, all children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of abuse going on in these kind of homes. There's a lot of trauma in this family. Too much for two of the children, and they would end their own lives in their young adult years. After his mother's death, Perry reunited with his father, working with him for a while, but that was only short-lived. I think living with Smith Sr. was not good at all. Perry Smith then went on to get into petty crime, and in 1948, Perry Smith joined the US Army. Apparently, he served in Korea, but it looks like he often got into trouble because of his temper, often getting into fights with fellow soldiers. And still, he was honorably discharged in 1952. After he left the army, he worked as a car painter, which reminds me, I think he always had kind of an artistic side to him, like he was playing guitar and singing and drawing. But when I say he was a car painter, I don't mean that he was drawing cars. I mean, he did the paint jobs on cars. So just to clear that up. I think there's also people who make a living from painting cars, like drawing oh, yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can guarantee you there are, because my late husband used to collect car paintings. So he works there, he saves up some money and decides to buy a motorbike. And one time he rides his bike, the weather was kind of bad, and he loses control and crashes his bike. And just like Hickok's accident, Smith's accident almost killed him as well. He had to spend months and months in the hospital and he would never fully recover. He had such severe injuries to his legs that he would need to rely on pain medicine for the rest of his life. After the accident, uh, he too got in the spiral of petty crime theft, ultimately leading to his arrest after he had committed a burglary at some store in Phillipsburg, Kansas. After his arrest, he had managed to escape from jail and was on the run for quite a while, I think it was even more than a year, 
Ultimately, he was caught, sentenced to 5 to 10 years, and sent to Lansing, where he then met his cellmate, Richard Hickok. So, Perry had spent over three years in Lansing when he was granted parole and he was released in July of 1959. Does it feel to you as well that they were more generous with, with parole after just a very short amount of time served back yeah, then? I think so. They were not uh, first-time offenders. No. And he, Perry Smith, even escaped from jail, was on the run. So, I'm, mm. yeah. Surprising always to read about these uh, prison sentences back then. I know. Well, even today, sometimes. Sometimes they were so much harsher and sometimes they're just like, Whatever. that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, I just want to make it very clear that we didn't tell you about Hickok's and Smith's early life to make you feel empathy for them. Yes, they did have a hard life and a lot of trauma. And while it might give an insight to why they did what they did, it will never be a justification or excuse. There are plenty, plenty of people out there who had traumatic experiences in their childhood, and they are good people. What Smith and Hickok went on to do was their choice, and their choice alone, and they are the only ones responsible. Absolutely. I personally, myself, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I always want to know the why of the thing. And so understanding elements that contribute to violent or antisocial, shocking behavior, these sorts of things. This is why I studied this subject in my undergrad. But it's not a curiosity of detail and contributing factor for the salaciousness of it. You know what I mean? There's mm. We've got reality TV for that. If I want salacious, it's out there. This is more, as you said, it explains, it doesn't excuse the behavior, and it helps us to try and understand where it comes from so that we can try to prevent it from happening in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. So Smith was already out, and Hickok was released in August of 1959, and he had started to work as a mechanic, but soon he contacted Perry Smith via letter. Excuse me for interrupting, but this has to be, most likely was a violation of the parole terms, right? I don't know if every parole has the same terms, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that in most cases you can't socialize with ex-convicts. No, I think you're right, and I would assume not. Yeah. I don't know when the parole laws started and if it was illegal or not, so that's a good question. I do feel confident that, again, neither of them were really law followers. So I don't think it was like, oh, I didn't know I was violating probation. Yeah. I never would have called him officer had I known. So they did socialize Hickok and Smith. And Hickok tells Smith about this rich farmer in Holcomb and about his plan to get at least 10 grand from him. So now it's the 14th of November, 1959, a Saturday. Herb is 48, Bonnie is 45, Nancy is 16, and Kenyon is 15. The oldest daughters are living their adult lives outside of the family home. One was already married, and the other was about to be married. At the time, Nancy was dating a young boy from school named Bobby, and we saw an interview with him where he says that that night, he and Nancy were actually supposed to go to a midnight screening at the local movie theater, 
but ultimately decided to go the night before, so they went on Friday instead. And he often thinks about how different things would have been if they'd stuck to their original plan of going on Saturday. That's sad. Very. While Smith and Hickok were in their car, driving roughly 400 miles, or 640 kilometers, from Kansas City to Holcomb, they made several stops, once because they tried to purchase stockings, allegedly even from nuns in a hospital, because they wanted to use them to cover their faces, they purchased gloves and rope and adhesive tape, then they had to stop at a diner to eat something. Meanwhile, at the Clutter Home, Nancy is spending the evening at home. Bobby is over and they all watch TV, and Bobby leaves around 10 or 11 p.m., making him the last witness to see the family alive. Nancy is the last one to go to bed. In the early morning hours, a car pulls up the long driveway to the clutter home. Hickok and Smith get out of the car, grab their things, and enter the house through an unlocked door to look for the safe containing at least $10,000. A few hours later, on Sunday morning, the 15th of November, one of Nancy's classmates, Susan, arrives at the Clutter House. She was supposed to go to church with Nancy and her family, but something is not right. The house is quiet, nobody seems to be awake yet, and that definitely was completely out of character for this family. Susan doesn't enter the house, not yet, but instead she gets back into her dad's car, and together they drive over to another house, where their friend Sue lives, asking if they have seen the clutters. Nobody has. So Susan, Susan's dad, as well as Sue and her parents, all drive back over to the clutter family home, and they now enter. At first, the only thing out of place they see is Nancy's open handbag on the floor. They call out for Nancy, Kenyon, Herb, and Bonnie, but nobody answers. The house stays quiet. They make their way upstairs, and Sue's mother enters Nancy's bedroom, and immediately she exits the room screaming, running downstairs. She has found the lifeless body of Nancy on the bed, and there is blood everywhere. Someone runs to the telephone to call for help, but they find the line has been cut. So they have to get back into the car to get the sheriff, who arrives at the River Valley Farm around 9.30 a.m. The house was searched, and the remaining members of the family were all found, all of them dead, killed by a shot to the head. Herb's throat was cut in addition to the shotgun wound. The Ottawa Herald 16 November, 1959, page 1. Quote, Four of a family are slain on remote farm. In a farm home far off the beaten path of this vast wheat area, four members of a respected, well-to-do family were murdered over the weekend. Herbert Clutter, 48, his wife Bonnie, 45, their daughter Nancy May, 16, and son Kenyon, 15, were bound, head and foot, and gagged. All were shot in the head. Clutter's throat was slashed. The victims were slain by a shotgun. Neither the gun nor the weapon with which Clutter's throat was cut have been found. Nothing in the house was in disarray. 
no valuables appeared to be missing. Money, which Nancy had placed in an envelope for church, lay on her bedroom dresser beside a diamond ring. The coroner, Dr. Robert Fenton, said Mrs. Clutter and Nancy apparently were not molested sexually. He placed the time of death between 11 p.m. Saturday and 2 a.m. on Sunday. The family apparently had been ready to retire when they were attacked. All except Kenyon were in pajamas. The boy wore blue jeans and a white t-shirt. The bodies of Mrs. Clutter and Nancy were in separate bedrooms. Clutter and Kenyon were found in the basement. The home, seven miles west of Garden City, is nearly a mile away from any through road. The only persons living close by are the family of Alfred Stockline, who has worked 11 years as a farmhand for the Clutters. Stockline said he saw the Clutters early Saturday evening before he and his wife and three children went out. They returned about 9.30 p.m. They heard no disturbance. Nancy and Kenyon attended high school in Holcomb, a village of 270, a mile from their home. Both were honor students, and Nancy last week won the school's Good Citizenship Award. She appeared in the junior class play Friday night. A classmate of Nancy's, Bob Rupp, said he left the clutter home at 10.30. End quote. I think this is a good place to stop for this week. We will be talking about the hunt for their murderers and the capture and the trial and what had actually happened that horrible night as well as about the involvement of Truman Capote and Harper Lee in all of this. My something good is once more our little tiny village here. I had a lovely experience, I already told Annie about it. Um, we had a lot of snow uh, last week. It was snowing for four days, or three days or four days. I didn't move the car for any of those days. And then when I finally needed the car... The battery, well, it didn't start because it was too cold. We had like minus 15 degrees Celsius, which I know is not, not as cold as other listeners have it. But for here, it's, it's one of the colder days. And I didn't know what to do. And I called for roadside assistance and they were, you couldn't get through. They were just, there were too many people having troubles with their car. So I... We have a WhatsApp group in our little village here if somebody needs something or looking for something or to inform other people. And so I put a message there asking if somebody could uh, help me jumpstart the car. Yeah. And immediately somebody called who told me he'd be over in 30 minutes. He just has to defrost his car and see if he has enough battery left. And I hung up and then it rang on the door. <laughs> And it was the next person who came to help me. And I went outside with that, that one. And while I was standing outside with the, with that person who came over immediately, the next one came. So in like three minutes, three people came to help me with the car. And I find that amazing. Also, yesterday I went to see, uh, the, we have a musical about Falco that had world premiere a couple of months ago in Vienna. And I saw it yesterday. I was invited by a friend, my friend from uh, Hamburg, and he already knows her from talking to her. Mm -hmm. And that musical is amazing. If you like Falco and you have the chance to see it in Vienna, please do. It's fabulous. Opus is a huge Falco fan. You know this. I've told you this before. Because I think, because he likes the dancing dogs and there is a guy that performs with his dog. It's, you know, he'll work to music technically, but the dog is a border collie and the dog's name is Falco. 
and they dance to a lot of Falco songs. They're, I think they're like That's super amazing. fans. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> I'm going to find it and send it to you. And Opus will watch it. He loves it. He loves the dancing doggies. But I'm thrilled that it was as good as it was. Yeah, I'm excited about that. How about you? I have just had a really, really wonderful visit from my birth mom. And just the better I get to know her, the nicer it is. And with the two dogs, everything in the house has been absolute chaos. So she's been <laughs> sort of, sort of like almost like taking care of me like I'm sick, but really just running interference so that I could sit down and look at our notes. And she's, you know, there right now. By the time you guys listen to this, she'll have departed. But yeah, she's been here and she's a huge, huge help. And it's been really great, actually. We're having a great time and working on craft projects. I'll tell you all more about later. And I'm just buried. I'm I'm so... I've got too much on... We both are in a place where mm-hmm. we have too much on our plates right now. I don't even want to do Christmas this year. Can we just all take a nap? That's what I want for Christmas, a nap. I'm kind of looking forward to Christmas, but I'll, I'll talk about that next week. Yeah, we'll talk more about that next week because I have some fun stuff happening between now and then. A lot of my obligations are really great things. It's just... Yeah. It's just a lot of time. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and trying to get the things you don't want to do out of the way so that you can yeah. enjoy the things you yeah. do want to do. That's my problem. All right. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge favor and go to your podcast app, see if you can leave us a rating and or review. For everything else, go to our webpage. There you find the links to our merch store, to our PO box, to our email address, which is freshhellpodcast at gmail.com, to our Patreon. Patreon get together murder tier will be on 29th of December. So shortly before New Year's Eve. And join our Facebook group. It's lovely. It's the best group of weirdos out there. It absolutely is by far the most stellar collection of eccentrics on the internet. We have everything. You looking for a kind of person? We got it. We got all the best people. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. Please tell your pets we said hi. Hug them, cuddle them, give them a treat. Be kind to them. Be Mm -hmm. kind to your fellow human beings. Somebody asked me, do we have to? And I say, yeah, as long as they're not assholes and creeps, please try. You have to. It's part of being in a community. Just be nicer. Yeah. Just be nice. And also be kind to yourself. It's so hard, but it's so important. It's the worst. It's legitimately the worst, but you have got to do Mm. it. You just have to. Just have to. And... As we always like to end the show, just a little reminder that you're okay. Everything's going to be okay. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Choose. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.